Callaway's new Rogue ST drivers represent a breakthrough in driver performance. The Rogue ST drivers are Callaway's fastest, most stable drivers ever. Think speed, go Rogue with Callaway, the kings of distance. To find out which Rogue ST driver is right for you, visit callawaygolf.com.au. Hello and welcome to episode 58 of The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's never-ending quest to solve the riddle of just what it is that appeals to people about this endlessly fascinating game. My name's Rod Murray, and on today's episode we're going to talk golf and trailblazing and the breaking down of stereotypes and what it takes to be at the forefront of change. My guest today is a name that won't be familiar to most of you, but don't be fooled. What Geraldine O'Callaghan has achieved in life and golf is in some ways at least as impressive as some of the major winners and senior officials that we've welcomed to the show. Jerry is one of only a handful of women course superintendents in Australia, having recently been appointed to the top job at Sandringham Golf Links in Melbourne. For those unfamiliar, Sandringham's a public course, but it is managed by its better-known neighbour across the street, Royal Melbourne. Jerry's promotion to Sandy's top job late last year firmly establishes her as a potential future superintendent at RM, one of the world's most highly regarded clubs. So what does it take for a woman to be so successful in such a male-dominated industry? Obviously, Jerry's great at a job, but it takes more than that to break down stereotypes. It takes a certain attitude, determination, an open mind, and a confidence that not all of us possess. Jerry has all those things in spades, and today we're going to find out a bit about the journey that brought her here. Jerry O'Callaghan, we have to start by saying thank you, as I always do. It's quite the commitment to do the thing about golf, so we appreciate you taking the time, of which I'm going to guess you haven't got necessarily a whole lot. Can you give the listeners your name, rank, and serial number, please? Well, thank you, Rod. Um, my name's Jerry O'Callaghan. Uh, I'm now the superintendent at Sandringham Golf Links, which is the home now of... Uh, Golf Excellence of Australia. Uh, you're the superintendent now. When did that happen? Uh, about six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before Previously, I was, for the 14 months before that, uh, the assistant superintendent here, uh, and that was a fantastic time with the growing of the second nine holes of the new layout. Mm-hmm. For those not aware, Sand- Sandy's a public course, smallish plot of land across the road from Royal Melbourne. Royal Melbourne took over the lease, I think, or the control of the course some time ago. It's now the home of Golf Australia and the PGA. Their offices are here in a high-performance centre, and it's also been completely redesigned and is really drawing some accolades for being a public facility with a difference. Tell us about some of that, because apart from being the course super, you're an extremely good golfer with an interest in the game beyond grass. So tell us a bit about the place. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so yeah, I started here 2011 before my first President's Cup. Now I've had two under my belt, um, and yeah, since then, obviously, um, the OCM redesign and redevelopment, um, which has been fantastic. Uh, so now, the, as you said, the 65 par layout, a little bit shorter. There's no par fives. So I find it's a lot more fun. Um, you know, just getting out there. It's sand belt feel. Um, but yeah, every court, every hole, you know, you don't have to hit driver off the, off the tee. And you know, you've really got to think about that shot into the green because, uh, there's some, Pretty flat greens and then some doozies of greens uh-huh. as well. So, um, got that firm, you know, firmness about it, like across the road at Royal Melbourne. Uh, and also too, just, yeah, that, that experience of, you know, the tea tree on the sides and a little bit of, you know, light rough and things like that. Proper golfer's golf. Correct. Yeah. 
We'll talk about some other stuff as we go, but I think we probably should go back to the jumping off point, off point of the podcast, which is the name of it, The Thing About Golf. What's The Thing About Golf for Jerry O'Callaghan? So I started probably playing golf um, competitively when I was 13, 14 up in the country. How did that happen? How, uh, so what was the path to golf for you? We, uh, well, in, in the country, uh, as a kid, Rod, you know, you play everything. I played softball, basketball, netball, footy with the boys. I actually had to um, – this is a funny side note, but uh, I used I grew up and I went to a Catholic primary school and uh, I used to have to take a note to the nuns from my mum because I wanted to play cricket and I wanted to play with the boys all the time and just sport in general and they were really afraid I was going to get injured. Right. So I had to take a note to say, yeah, <laughs> she's okay. okay. We okay. take responsibility for Jerry's injuries. That, that's it. That's it. And then uh, when I went to high school, um, the last sort of two weeks of the year uh, was always field trips and things like that. And we went for a field trip out to the golf course and um, yeah, started started having a hit and, and um, you know, the mentors there, Fred and Marion Smith, uh, they're legends up there in Kahuna and um, they said oh you should come and have a hit and, and come and join our junior squad and stuff like that so I uh, yeah progressed uh, pretty quickly I guess um, with pretty good hand-eye coordination and yeah started started playing and um, yeah I, I remember all you know back then you used to have a handicap card and I'd watch my handicap come down and you know by the time I was sort of 15 16 was on single figures and and just progressed from there and um, you know got into the intermediate training squad which was fantastic Used to come down to Melbourne um, back then, you know, Steve Band, Dennis McDay, they were the, the head coaches back then. And, um, yeah, mum mum was uh, always a bit nervous coming down because obviously I couldn't drive. So it was always a, an overnight trip to come down to the then pretty much brand new Albert Park driving range um, for, for squad lessons and things like that. But, um, you know, I've, I've always found golf, is, it's a great equaliser um, no matter – how good you are, how bad you are, how old you are, um, you know, everyone can play it. And so that's what I loved about it. And, you know, as I said, growing up in the country, um, when I did my VCE, I used to love going out to the golf course and if I'd had a bad day, you smash, you know, the buggery out of the golf ball. Um, but then, you know, it's, it's, I think like green keeping, um, I find, you know, the effort you put in is the effort you get out. So, you know, I guess I'm a little bit OCD about a lot of things and uh, I like to do things well. So, you know, I'd always be practicing and, and stuff like that. And, and again, I think growing up in the country, you can play it by yourself. So, you know, if, if I didn't have any other, you know, appointments or anything like that and everyone else did, then I could still go and play golf. Kicking a ball to no one very quickly gets tired. Yeah, it's a bit, you a bit go boring. Pick it back up. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. A bit like cricket, you know, no wicketkeeper. Did any of those other sports grab you at all similarly to the way golf did and was it immediate for you? Some people golf grows in them. Some people, the very minute they pick up a club, that's it. That's me for the rest of my life. And some are, don't ever bring me here again. This is the dumbest pursuit I've ever come across. <laughs> they might be the smart ones, but was it immediate for you? Uh, I think it probably wasn't like completely immediate. Um, I think, um, yeah, in my late teens and early twenties, like I'd lost both my parents quite quickly. So for me, golf was about belonging to a golf club. Um, so in the early days, I think it was more about competitiveness and I used to love netball, but I'm, I'm very much team orientated as well as, um, you know, solo golfer. But, um, I think golf more than anything, like I said, it was you versus the course or you versus the other person. So if you lost, it was just you. Um, and in saying that too, though, you know, when you're losing a team, that's a pretty good environment. You all get back together and you get back mm. up and, and keep going. But you can play well in a losing team, can't you? And, and for competitive people, that can drive you mad. Sometimes it gives you, have you a good the day at the grand final and oh, you lose. Is, how did it. that happen? Have 40 possessions that's and right. all that sort of thing. But, um, but you know, I think, I think in the end, um, and nowadays too, I mean, I just love being part of the club and, and, uh, like I said to you earlier, just giving back to the game as well. But yeah, I, I mean, for me now, golf is very much, 
Sunday at Southerns playing for wine and chips, you throw the balls up and, you know, you do that sort of thing, beers afterwards and, and um, not that I'm an alcoholic, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Just uh, every Sunday. Very social, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. You mentioned that you lost your parents earlier. We might talk a bit more about that a bit later, but we can, if we're not careful, and I'm very prone to this, overplay the importance of golf in a situation like that. And I guess we can probably underplay it too. That's been some time ago. What's your assessment of how golf fit in a highly stressful time? I used to write stories. There was a tournament ages ago that Golf Link ran called the Golf Link Cup. And I would often ask people how they started playing golf. And for a lot of people who move towns quite regularly, golf was their way to become part of the community, far more so than other clubs and sports. And I always wondered whether there's something about golf in particular that gives you. So what are your own thoughts about that, perhaps having had that experience of losing your friends, which is at a young age is an awful thing to happen, obviously. Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there because, um, again, like, you know, how I sort of got into, I guess, metropolitan golf. Um, I, was, I was down here playing in a tournament called the Country Teams and some of the ladies at Southern Golf Club saw me and said, oh, do you want to come and play pennant for us? And um, for me, that was a huge accolade. And um, It you know, is a huge accolade. It, well, it really it still to, is. To play major metropolitan pennant in Melbourne – might be as competitive as amateur golf gets in the world without going to that next level where you're really a pro in waiting. Yeah, I, I, I feel like that. I'm still very privileged to play Division One pennant now. So, um, but yeah, I think, uh, going back to it, you know, like for me, being asked to go and do something like that was fantastic. And so then when I came back from traveling overseas and I'm a very loyal person. So I went back and, and found a friend at Southern and said, Oh, I'm back from, you know, um, who I'd known previously. So, and I said, I'm back from traveling. And I said, oh, I'm, I think I might get back into golf. I wasn't. So you actually, took a break from the game? I did. I took six years off. Um, because of losing your parents? Uh, yeah, mainly, wrapped up in that? mainly because of that. And, you know, I was sort of a bit of a crossroad in life, I guess you could say. Um, but yeah, when, as I said, when I came back, I, you know, I wasn't actually quite sure if, A, I could still play okay. Um, and to the level that I would want to play. But yeah, obviously. No, no problems at all. Um, but yeah, coming back and then, as you said, you know, like, cause I moved to Melbourne to actually straight away be part of a golf club and to have that first group of friends and that first, I guess, you know, social network, which it very much is when you're part of a golf club. And, and saying that also too, you know, like now I've got friends and, and it, it blows me away that I say this cause I've got friends that play at Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath and all these other places that I, I hold, you know, close friends. And, you know, I'd never thought as a country kid, you know, that that had ever happened. And, um, you know, I think the sense of belonging, like you said, and, and growing up in the country, um, you know, being part of the local sporting community, whether it's tennis or whether it's football or netball, um, yeah, you become very involved and I think very community minded and, you know, you tend to look after each other. And, and I find, for me, that's, I even get tingles talking about it. That's, I think, part of, yeah, you, you belong to a club. So perhaps we're not making it too important. Maybe it's too, it's too important for some of us and not important for some others, but it's, it does have a very real role to play. What did you do for six years, Jerry? How can you be a good enough player to be imported from the country to play major metropolitan pennant and then take six years off? How can you walk away from the game like that? Uh, so I, I think, um, I say it quite often, yeah, it's a bit of a soul-searching journey, I guess, and I look back now and I, I say that I probably ran away a little bit, but um, for me it was just getting away and, and, and seeing, you know, the world and 
Um, my mum, she actually, uh, as a kid wanted to travel and, and do a lot of things and was never allowed because I guess back in that day, you did what your parents told you, you know, completely. And so, um, I actually applied to go work at a summer camp in America and I applied, you, when you apply, you put down sort of your three strengths and I put golf, um, cause I'd been a junior coordinator in the country and stuff that oh, I'll teach kids how to play golf. Perfect. And I really wanted to go to like a special needs, um, you know, camp. And anyway, I ended up, I put just the, for my, my third option, uh, I've, Grew up on the Murray and I can water ski. So, um, yeah, third, third Is option. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the sort of thing that can really turn on you if you're not careful. Exactly. Oh, you know, I can water ski. I didn't, didn't embellish too much. No. Um, you know, I'm pretty, a pretty humble person. So, um, yeah. And, and so anyway, I ended up at a summer camp, uh, full on traditional Jewish camp at, in Pennsylvania as a water ski instructor. So a long way from Kahuna. A long way. Yeah. Yep. Got to see the Statue of Liberty and back then, this was 2001, so, you know, selfies really weren't a thing back then, but I have a selfie with the Statue of Liberty. And um, and so for eight weeks, yeah, I pretty much laid on the lake and, you know, these kids range from ages 7 to 17, so all they really wanted to do was um, tube behind the boat and kneeboard, so... I don't even have to teach them how to ski. So this is pretty good. They jump in, you give them a life jacket, make sure they can swim, that sort of thing. <laughs> make sure you don't lose any. Exactly. Be yeah. Fine. yeah. Just put your hand up if you fall off. Um, so, you yeah, know, that was a fantastic experience and something, um, you know, like I, for, as a, again, you know, as a country kid, just seeing the rest of the world and, and, and sort of, I guess, finding yourself. And I ended up, um, so that was for two months. Uh, in 2001 and then uh, I came home and I thought, no, nah, I'm going to do it again. And I got invited back uh, the next summer. And so I thought oh, I'll tack on. Um, back then, you could get a two-year work visa for England. Uh, so I, went, I did that, and when I travelled in um, the UK and Ireland and Scotland and places like that, and I didn't actually take my golf clubs because yeah, I was like, I'm backpacking. I don't need the, the extra luggage and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, went went off travelling for off and on for six years, and then um, you know came back for the birth of a niece or a nephew and or a Christmas or something like that. And um, then when I came back in 2007, I thought I've really got to start to get responsible and, and a real job and everything. And I guess you have, you come to those crossroads in life. And, you know, when I got back, or a lot of my friends that, um, and they'd got married and had kids and they got a house, I'm like, oh, I haven't got much to show for what I've done. But, you know, never regret anything. All those experiences that I had overseas, certainly, um, they make you a stronger person. And, and I think, um, I, I, I myself, in, in my work life value life experience, um, you know, especially when you're employing people, um, if they've got a bit of a diverse background, that doesn't mean they're not the right person for the job, fine turf, for example, or, or anything like that. So I, I really value that. And I thought oh, I've, I've had all those experiences and, and, um, you know, then I find something else that I love to do, then, you know, hopefully it'll all bundle together. And quite a few people sort of said to me, Oh, you know, we thought you could do greenkeeping when you left school and all this sort of thing. And had you ever thought about it? Was no. it ever in your mind? What would you, back then, it's probably hard to answer. What would you have thought you were going to do with your life? Yeah. Well, um, I, I really wanted to be a commercial pilot. Like right. I, I love how things work and I was fascinated how, you know, jumbos stay in the air with all those passengers, all that fuel and all me this too, sort of thing. Me too, which is right? why I refuse to get on them because <laughs> I haven't been able to figure out how it does happen. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. So um, I really wanted to do that and then, yeah, of course, everything happened. And That's a huge ambition. A, a huge commercial ambition. pilot. That's a huge ambition. Mm. More again, so than perhaps becoming a professional golfer. That's true, yeah. Well, I mean, professional golf never really crossed my mind because I was always a bit of a homebody and, um, you know, like I – in all honesty, I probably would have gone down the teaching um, – 
you know, like, and I, I, I never really thought about primary school teaching or anything like that. That never ever crossed my mind. I was always just wanted to be a commercial pilot. Yeah. So, spoiler alert: a lot of travelling if you're a commercial pilot as well. So, not True. much different to being a professional yeah, exactly. golfer for the homebody. Probably a lot of COVID <laughs> tests in this day and age. So, um, and not much work in the past few years. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, things happen in life, and and mm. I, yeah. I, th- I believe things happen for reasons and, t- and timing's everything. So, you know, that wasn't meant to be. And, um, you know, like uh, I'm off, off to King Island in January um, to play some golf and I said, I'm shotgun, I'm in the, sh- I'm in the front seat because it's only a small plane and all my friends are like, you know, we well, don't want to go. put people in the picture, you have a pilot's licence, do you? Know? I have a pilot's licence, yeah. yes. Yeah. As well as being, of course, superintendent. Yes, the, yeah. Playing off. One at the moment. One at the moment, yeah. Mm. It's starting to annoy me a bit, Jerry, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I'll, I'll just exit now. There yeah. are, <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of achievements. I keep coming back to and I can see you feeling emotional there. That's a life-changing event, losing your parents early in life. It sounds like it really changed yours, but that you've some you've thought about it, you've accepted maybe, maybe that's the wrong word. No, I don't, I don't think that's the wrong, wrong word. Um, you know, you go through – and I, I there's a lot of stages in grief. I mean, you, I still Huge have – Huge upheaval. Yeah. Enormous upheaval. Yeah. You, you might feel physically at sea for – Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, 19 years old to lose your mum who's – you know, the most important person. And, and you think about, oh, I do anyway, they're there for you forever. You know, they see a lot of things that happen in your life and they're not there. So, um, it, it does, I mean, it, it does tug at the heartstrings all the time. But, um, you know, saying that, I've always said, you know, you, there's always forks in life. So you can either go down one fork and, and I've always said, you know, like I could have been an abuser of everything and all that sort of thing, or I could have gone, no, that's not what my parents would have wanted. And, and you had every um, reason, Jerry, had you wanted to, nobody would have begrudged you it. going off the rails. That's it. Becoming whatever, would mm, they? No, I, I don't think so. And, and again, um, you know, I think the town that I grew up in and, and the morals and the values that my parents instilled in me, uh, that probably would never have happened because, yeah, every, I think everyone in a small town, they look after each other and, and, you know, mm. like I've got, Heaps of big brothers and sisters because of my older siblings. I'm the youngest of, um, of four. So, um, two older brothers and an older sister. So you're always known as their little sister in a small town. So, um, and, and you know, like you, I think you draw on all those experiences in life when things happen. And, um, I believe it's made me a stronger person and a more resilient. And I think, you know, when I was a kid, I suppose I was a bit of a dummy spitter and pretty competitive when I was a kid. So now I feel like I'm a little bit more calmer and um, a bit more patient with people. And 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 the role that I have now, you know, being more of a mentor and a um, you know a trainer, I guess um, for me it's a lot of pride. And if they then go on to other jobs and you know they say, oh, they've worked under Jerry or you know, oh, Jerry taught them that, then parenting, Jerry, in it, a funny way, mentorship and parenting. Yeah, that's- well, you know, I've got. There's probably only two or three of the boys at work that are older than me, so all the rest are my little brothers. And, <laughs> you know, sometimes a good clip around the year doesn't hurt them. So. I don't want to pry, but losing your parents, did, did that happen simultaneously? What happened? Or did they die separately? Uh, so, mum, pa- uh, mum had a massive heart attack in April 1997. And then about three months later, dad had a massive stroke. So, you oh, know, wow. probably related. Um, you know, a bit of stress and whatever. And so, yeah, he, he survived for two years after that, but he, um, had lost the right side of his body movement. Um, so yeah, well, he was a very hard worker all his life. And, and, um, you know, as, as a lot of people that may have experienced stroke, um, patients that, you kind of trapped in your body. So, um, yeah, for us to see him a very hard worker and he was a good little footballer in his day and stuff. And, you know, to see him to sort of, you know, not be able to do and get frustrated. Mm. And yeah, that was, that was pretty hard to take. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, that, that again, it's, it's such a hard thing to go through. And I think, um, and, until you, did you say you were 19? 19, 19, yeah. Good Lord. Um, 
And, you know, until, I guess, until you go through it yourself, you, you don't really know how, but, um, touching just back on the, you know, the, all the different things about grief, uh, I can still, you know, smell her perfume or smell dad used to um, comb his hair over. So like brill cream, things like all the senses yeah, yeah. are still very strong, very strong, you know, or, or music and yeah. stuff like that. So all the memories are still there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I say to a lot of people, um, I was, in, you know, in, in the, on the opposite side of that, all of, all of grief and everything, I was so lucky I had 19 years. So some people don't get that. Um, you know, they, they don't get as many years. So yeah. We could all think a little more like that often, couldn't we, about we could. all sorts of different. We could, yeah. I'm intrigued by, you don't accidentally get really good at golf. So it must have been a big part of your life before that happened. It was. And then disappeared completely from your life for that. Did you have feelings about golf? Was it a deliberate, I don't want to be a part of golf? That's part of what I was doing before or was it? Because it's a big thing to give up, isn't it? It is, yeah. And and even to this day, you know, like I, for me, it's kind of like that was my past life. Like, even though I I have a daughter or anything, but you know, that's kind of like, a, yeah, something happened there. Yes, a, life a, changed there. A great divide, exactly. And so, um, you know, like I, it's not that I never really thought about golf, you know, the whole time I was away. Because you know, obviously, I went to Scotland and and saw all the beautiful courses there. And um, I'll, we'll touch later. But I you know, was lucky enough um, four years ago to, to make make a pilgrimage back there. So, um, but yeah, I think the whole time that I was away, it was um, you know, like it was all such a new experience for me. And and I think um, you know, growing up in a small country town and. And, you know, we, we used to do day trips to Melbourne to come to the footy and it was just like, oh, my God, how far away is Melbourne? And then I went overseas, took took a plane for 14 hours and went the other side of the world. Pennsylvania. Like, how far away is Pennsylvania? <laughs> as far as you could get. Yeah. So, um, so no, I think, you know, like I, I did think about golf every now and then. Um, but as you said before, you know, like it can be the most important thing in your life. And I think now when I look back now, I think, oh, well, you know, where I've come to and where I've um, got to, it's certainly – a big part of my life now. So, um, you know, for that, for that little while that I didn't really play it, I don't think it, yeah, never really was one of those things that I went, oh. To do some other stuff. Yeah, exactly. I didn't think I wasted any time not playing no, it. So, so when you come back and then golf comes back into your life, what happened there and what was that like? And obviously all the way up to here. Yeah. So I think, um, I, I vividly remember the day, um, when I, Came back to Melbourne and I, I started my adult apprenticeship of greenkeeping at Sandhurst Golf Club, uh, which was the original home of the PGA. PGA, that's right. Uh, and we used to have a half day on a Thursday because it was the men's day. And so I said to my friend at Southern, I'll come, I'll, I'll work and I'll come and play the last nine holes with you and you know, a couple of the other ladies. And, oh. and were you thinking, sorry, at that time were you thinking I might get back into golf or were you thinking I might just occasionally play nine here and there just yeah. to be with my friends more than about the golf? Exactly. I wasn't thinking competitively. Oh, Jerry. At that point. And you probably thought that that was – going to happen, didn't you? Yeah, and I, You were being sensible and, and everything I would thought, be fine. And this was, I mean, I was 28 when I, like, you know, came back and around about then and um, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I probably won't be as good as I used to be and all that sort of thing. And it's occasional. Exactly, yeah. The, you know, needs it a little bit. It's just about season. the 19th hole yeah, now. That's right. So, um, yeah, fully came back thinking, you know, when, when I left in 2001, I, my lowest mark then was four. And so when I came back, I'm like, you know, if I'm a 12, 13 handicapper, that's fine. That's pretty handy, yeah. you know. And so, um, after having six years off and, you know, I've obviously got my handicap back. I think oh, they gave me seven. So I was like, oh, this is pretty good. Easy, so yeah. first couple of years. So, but, um, I remember the, the Thursday I said, as I said to my friend, I'll come and join you for nine holes. And she said, oh, great. I'll grab a couple of pennant players. To, and I'm like, <laughs> don't do that to me. Exactly. Beep. <laughs> and, um, anyway, so I, I came and, and I hacked it around for the nine holes and I thought, oh my God, these two are going to be like, Carol, what have you, 
pulled out of the, you know, system here. So, um, but it was, it was, you know, it was still the same, um, atmosphere and still the same great club. And I thought, oh, well, you know, even if I get back into it and, you know, play Sundays and, you know, just have a, just occasionally. Exactly. Yeah. Twilight. Like, that's it. And then, you know, for me, it was probably more to, um, because I'd moved to Melbourne, I never lived a bit of networking and, yeah, you, know, sure. you know, social company people. Correct. Correct. So, um, yeah, never realizing that, um, you know, Probably in the first eighteen months, I'd be back down to sort of you know three or four and playing pennant again in um, in section two. So yeah, it was it was a bit of a whirlwind, I guess. And and then um, yeah, like the the greenkeeping sort of just sort of came out of nowhere. That before I moved back to Melbourne, um, my sister was living in Geelong, so I just went and lived with her for a little while and was like, oh, if I get a job, I get a job. You know, I'm still sort of in that transition of being a backpacker and stuff. So um, and just happened to have a chance meeting. Um, yeah, with Mark Brayshaw out at um, the home of the PGA. So he, he knows my cousin's husband quite well. And, yeah, um, long story short, his wife did the summer camp thing as well and we didn't really talk about greenkeeping or anything. And anyway, he said, oh, look, I'll give you a resume to the super and, um, you know, we'll see if there's a spot. And, yeah, lo and behold, just got a, a trial period um, on the greenkeeping staff there and just loved it and thought, oh, why didn't I do this years ago? But um, one of those things. You can't go. Peter Lonard told us on this very podcast – that in the Australian Open, I can't remember what year it was, he hit a shot, it was being played at the Australian. He was about to lose his card, he had to make the cut, had to finish top, whatever it was. He hit a shot which he hooked and it hit a plastic wheelie bin and kicked back out onto the fairway. He got it up and down, made birdie, made the cut by one, had a good weekend, and his career, without that, was likely going to be very different. Wow. Is that a bit the same for you? You didn't go seeking greenkeeping. You're now the course super at Sandringham, which puts you pretty high up in the pecking order of the greenkeeping staff at Royal Melbourne, which in the greenkeeping world is one of the plum jobs on the planet. So that's a long journey in there from a not a particularly ambitious start, it sounds like. Yeah, ve- very much so. And, and you know, I like, I, I like to do things well. Obviously, and and um, you know when I sort of first got into the greenkeeping caper, I was like, oh yeah, you know, like. Did you ever thought about it before? You no, you played all that golf. Even, Did you ever think about the grass or who looked after it, no. or how it ended up that way? I, I used to think, oh geez, you know, like how manicured places are and things like that, and 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 but I guess even back then, um, you know, like I think about it now, how um, natural, um, and 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 one of the one of the one of my f- favorite quotes is from Alistair McKenzie, and I can't remember word for word, but it talks about being a greenkeeper and you know, what you do, the, le- the less you do to make it more natural. So you kind of want to look like you've been there, but not really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess back then, you know, I used to love, I loved Lynx golf. Mm-hmm. I loved it from the start, even though Kahuna was, you know, carved out of the bush. And, um, you know, it's just you against the course. It's raw. They don't do much to courses in Lynx golf and it's you and the elements. And so I think even when I first started, um, you know, like I would look at golf courses and, but I never really, I guess I never, it never really clicked to me like, oh, I wonder how they do that or I wonder how they do this. Somebody's and doing that. Exactly. And, and <laughs> you know, I find now, I mean, it's probably changed a lot in the last 30, 35 years. It's very scientific now and, you know, it's not just what happens on the top of the grass. Well, it, and it's actually a bit disingenuous to call people who look after grass greenkeepers, isn't it? That Correct. is really understating the profession that yeah. is yep. being a course superintendent. Most of these people have university degrees. That's it. There's a reason they have very highly paid jobs because they're extremely good at what they do mm. uh, and it's not as easy as they make it look like with all mm. professionals. So once you started, what grabbed you about it, greenkeeping? Um, I think because, I mean, you know, having a farming background and, and um, you know, knowing that, 
uh, weather plays a lot, you know, a part in it and stuff like that. And um, both the enemy and the fre- the ally, isn't it? The absolutely, weather. yeah. You want the rain sometimes, and other yeah. times you don't want the rain, and then you want the heat. But um, I, th- I think most importantly, it was that I was outdoors, and you know, like I, I still. I wouldn't say I loved golf. I still liked golf and, um, and I'm very sports orientated just in general. So, you know, to be around people that are like, you know, a lot of the staff at the moment, they're cricketers or they're footballers. And so you're talking sport all the time. And, and, you know, I'm talking high level. Some of them are, you know, sort of state level cricketers and things like that. So, um, you know, I guess I've always surrounded myself with strong willed and, and like minded people. Mm-hmm. And, um, there was three other girls on the staff at Sandhurst. So yeah, it was a, a good little community to, to get into, I guess, straight away. And, and I just really loved. Again, I guess about that belonging in a team. Um, cause I mean, the smallest team I worked at was when I first started here at Sandringham, which was three, three of us. And so, yeah, I went from Sandhurst, which was around, I think, 20 for two courses. Wow. And then, of course, now Royal Melbourne, I think it's like 35 when it's uh, full capacity. So I do love working in a team. And I think that was the whole environment. And, um, you know, again, fine turf surfaces and you walk away and you've, mowed the fairway, you've mowed the green and you go, oh, someone's going to enjoy that experience. And um, again, yeah, just touching on it, just, yeah, agriculture, I guess. And, um, you know, knowing that, yeah, what you put in is what you get out and all, all I, I don't know, there's a lot of things, I guess, that made me really think, oh, I could do this. Um, and, you know, it's such a diverse skill set, you know, you, it's irrigation, it's hand watering, it's spraying, it's mowing, it's raking, it's, it's a lot of things that you have to you got to be psychic. Be good at yes. You got to be a scientist and mm. a psychic. You got uh, to have eyes in the back of your head yeah. to spot the golf balls and all these sorts of things. <laughs> well, there's, so. there's all that sort of <laughs> stuff as well. The elephant in the room, of course, Jerry, is that you're a woman, and we don't automatically still yet associate being a course superintendent with being a woman. It's not that there aren't any, but it's what we might have considered a stereotypically male job, like being a mechanic or a plumber or a carpenter. There's no good reason for that. But that's the way the world's been for a very long time. Has that been a part of the journey for you? Has it been an issue? Have you felt like a trailblazer? Have you ever been made to feel unwelcome because you're a woman? Um, I, I love that word trailblazer and I, I've never said that I am a trailblazer, but I think, um, I'd like to think I'm very much a role model. And, um, yeah, I, I think when I, when I first started the greenkeeping, um, you know, never in a million years did I think superintendent. I was always like, oh, you know, a senior role or a management role somewhere would be great to, to be a mentor and, and things like that. So I think the journey for me, um, you say unwelcome and all these sort of things. Everywhere I've been, it's, it's, it's been very welcoming. And, you know, like, I guess I'm pretty easy going. So I get along with everybody and I'm very much a, a, a helper. So I've always said, you know, if, I would never ask, as a boss, I would never ask my staff to do anything that I wouldn't do. So, you know, if it's Friday afternoon and, and we're out there and it's pissing down with rain and, um, you know, I'll be there finishing the job so we all finish on time, that sort of thing. So I think for me, it's, it's very much, um, a respect thing as well. I, I, I would like to think that everywhere I've been, I've got the respect of other people because I can do just as good a job or an even better job and I can operate everything like everyone else. And, 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 you know, sort of going back at the very start, it was, I guess a bit daunting because yes, it is very much a male-dominated industry. When you walk into a course super shed on most golf maintenance facility at most golf courses, most you're not going to encounter a woman. That's correct. And so, if you are a woman and walk into that, I would imagine I would imagine that would be extremely intimidating. Even if all the blokes are wonderful and lovely and nice, that's yes. got to be an intimidating environment at first. Very, very intimidating, and and I think too because you know you walk in and and again it's it's like I say a lot of the time at Royal Melbourne and and now at Sandringham because I'm the only woman on the staff. 
you're singled out for good reasons because, you know, they see the blonde hair and they go, oh, there's Jerry. You know, that's not like, oh, there's Max, there's whoever, you know, because they, they're all just the boys. Mm. There's so many of them, but because <laughs> I'm the only girl. To be honest, we're a dime, <laughs> Jerry. You, really, you can yeah. pick up another, there'll be another one along any minute. Don't Exactly, panic. <laughs> exactly. But uh, I don't, I don't think intimidating is a good word because you, you do walk into a room and, and, you know, for me it was, oh my God, they've all got so much experience mm. and, and all that. And, so and you're, you're sort of two down, aren't you? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. You're new and you're different. Yes. Yeah, and I might not know as much as what they – and I haven't been here as long as yeah. them and all that sort of stuff. And so I, on the flip side of that, I went, well, I can teach them about golf because a lot of them play golf socially, so they don't really – I guess – I shouldn't say they don't understand. They don't really, um, I guess, get the golf like how I get it. So um, for me, it was imparting my knowledge of playing golf and, and travelling and stuff like that on, on them and hopefully, um, you know, teaching them, you know. Um, and then I put my member's hat on and I think, oh, you're sitting beside a green and you've got the bloody machine rev right up. Well, just take it all the way down, let them putt out, then continue your work, that type of thing. So I, I looked at it as a um, they know a lot more than me, but I know a lot more than them too. Yeah. So, you know, there was a bit of give and take. Golf's a funny game in some ways, isn't it? Because it's kind of global. Uh, gender, race, all those things go out the window as soon as we introduce playing ability. Correct. I mean, in the pecking order of golf, Kari Webb is so far beyond me it's unimaginable. You're well beyond me because you're a better player. And that must be – I don't know if that's unique to golf, but there's something interesting about that, isn't there? If you're going to be in the golf industry and be a woman, is there something in that? Um, I think so. And and I like to think, again, you know, I'm very lucky to live on the East Course here and um, we'll probably touch on that later. But, you know, like I, I like to think that, you know, because when I go out and play, I see things differently to everyone else. A, because I'm a better golfer, but also too, because I'm a greenkeeper. Mm. So, you know, I, I was saying this to, to someone actually just yesterday. Let's say you're doing bunkers, for example, and, you know, you drive into a bunker. That's all you're focused on. But then when you're playing, you go, Oh, we need to cut that bit of grass. We need to cut that, you know. And so I think, you know, when, when you're a better player, you do see things differently. And, and I, I hope that, you know, like I instill that into the boys so they do a better job out in the golf course. And, and, and to me, it's all the little things that, that make it better. And, you know, and hopefully, you know, whether it's, um, you know, you trim around that sprinkler head or whether it's you rake that bunker perfectly and you place the rake in the right spot, all those things that, you know, the member comes along and it's not like, oh, they've done that again. Oh, they've done that again. And it's just that pleasant, I guess, experience that you're giving to people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't see me being a better golfer, any hindrance like, you know, I, I would play with anybody. Oh, of course, no, no, no. and I wasn't and, suggesting that. But, oh, no, no. But, but it is the right. It is that there is a pecking order, and, and oh. ability is absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, like a we joke about it um, quite often. There's a bunch of us go and has a hit of golf, and it's, now it's great at sandering a hand because you know we can come over here and still be in our work gear. So you know, they come straight from work, go and play six or seven holes. Whereas obviously at Raw, you know, we have to get changed and all that sort of thing. But um, it's great because you know, like I'll tee off the whites with the boys and have a bit of a joke and, and things like Are that. Are you the and, best golfer in the shed? Um, 35 people, you said? Mm, I'd, I'd be close to it. I wouldn't say I'm the best. No, no, yeah, but you'd yeah. be in the – Yeah, yeah. You I can mean, hold your own, clearly. C- correct, correct. Easily. So, um, but, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a joke, you know, because yeah, anytime we talk about golf and this and that, and I think in the past three or four weeks – my six club championship has been mentioned about 20 times. So, um, the boys are like, oh, they roll their eyes and carry on. But, um, yeah, I think I, I've never, um, you know, I've never been one to say, oh, I'm the best golfer or that because, um, you know, there's always better people out there. But, um, I would like to think that people want to play with me because I'm a better golfer. Because you're Jerry. Yes. Yeah. Did you say six club championships? Yes. It's not even double digits. Yet. Why would you be talking about it? <laughs> Why would anybody be mentioning it? I know. It? Yes. Well, I'm saying that. 
Carol Besley, who is my one of my best mates at Southern. She's got 17, so I'm on just her a, tail. Just a little ways yeah, to go. Yeah, yep. Where does that fit in your life and your golf experience, being a club champion, not just once, but six times? That is. It's pretty unbelievable. And, and we had presentation today just uh, last week and, uh, I always say it's an honor to win the club championship and, and I, and, and, you know, to represent then you're the champion for the year. And I guess. I guess it's like winning the claret jug, but um, they don't gift it to you. Either. It's not an easy thing. to No, win. it's not an easy thing. This year was a, a tough match, um, and and you know we we play two qualifying rounds and then into match play, and I love match play. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's do or die, and you just got to beat him in the hole. It doesn't matter the score. So um, you know, for for me, it's it's you know I guess it's a culmination. We played in November, so it's a culmination of a year of um, playing pennant early in the season, and then you know playing your golf for, throughout the year, and and. When you get to a low mark, obviously it's all about consistency and, um, I, I judge it on, you know, I look at my handicap at the start of the year and the end of the year. And so this year I've gone out 0.6. So I'm been a bit slack this year. And, um, but you know, to win the club championship is for me, it's probably, you know, very, very close to pennant because as you said earlier, that's the best amateur golf you can play without going and proper amateur golf. There's a level of amateur golf, which is really professionally waking. (laughs) Yes. Just below that is proper amateur golf, which is what you're playing. Correct. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, I, and now being a greenkeeper, like for me, club championships, setting up club championships is the epitome of the year. So, um, I I always hold it very high and, you know, to, to be a six time, to say that I've been a six time club champion, um, I think about people that I grew up idolizing in, in country golf and stuff like that who have won 10, 15. And I think, you know, like I've now, I've got my name on the trophy six times. So yeah, it, it's a very, um, it's, I think it's a very honor. It's very much an honor to, to be able to win it. So. Callaway's new and improved Chrome Soft family of golf balls is better for everyone, from amateurs to major winners like John Rahm, Phil Mickelson, and Annika Sorenstam. Now, with Callaway's proprietary new precision technology, the Chromesoft family delivers Callaway's highest quality, best performing, and most consistent golf balls. To learn more about precision technology and the new and improved Chromesoft, Chromesoft X, and Chromesoft XLS, visit callawaygolf.com.au. When you go to Southern and you drop into the maintenance shed, are you Jerry the club champion or are you Jerry the course super from Sandringham? Uh, well, Sean and I, Sean Taylor, uh, we have a very good relationship. So I do drop in every now and then and um, I'm Jerry the course super. So um, depending on how his day's been, I'm Jerry the golfer or I'm Jerry the super. But um, I'm here today as the club champion, Sean. There's some things we need to talk about. Exactly, yes. Cut that tree down, <laughs> do this right. and do that. Um, but, uh, you yeah, know, we have a great relationship. And, and Could that be awkward? I could imagine that. Oh, being the core super here and being a member at a different club, very much. There's so. a possibility for that to be. There is, there is, and people quite often say that to me. You know, like, oh, are you going to impart any knowledge? And I'm, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to pass on knowledge, and if it helps, um, the boys at Southern learn something. And we actually had one Jack Besley, who's the foreman there now. He came and volunteered at the Presidents Cup, and um, and yeah, he had a great time. And so he took back some ideas and just and and I think too, it's more about like organisation and when you get exposed to. I think there's 10 or 11 on the staff there. So then when you get exposed to a big team and the organization, you know, you can take small bits back and, and which will make your uh, facility run better. And, um, they were actually building a maintenance facility. And so I got all the boys and we did a, a tour at the, um, Royal Melbourne sheds. And so they've got that's a, a facility. They've got a Lego version of that. Right. Um, that's a facility. I've oh, been over there. That is, that's its own little city. It's, it's amazing. Un- yeah. It's got its own postcode. So, um, so yeah. So, I hope, you know, like, I mean, and, and, and the, Turf industry is great like that. And it's Return, a, it is a fraternal 
Yes. Or is it competitive? It's oh, bit of both. Bit of both. Bit of both. Yeah. There, there's certainly some competitive, I guess, levels of it. But um, in saying that too, everybody helps each other out. I mean, you know, like Royal Melbourne's great, and Richard's a fantastic He's- mentor. Um, you know, and even just you know, you talk about Royal Melbourne in general, and you know, we we just recently um, handed off some equipment to Horsham Golf Club, and then you know, l- last year, the year before, we went up and helped out a couple of country clubs. Um, we just sent machines and a couple of guys up for the day, and you know, whether it was scarifying or whatever, whatever they were doing, we just sent them up. And the recent, um, I think it was in the winter, uh, it was. Axdale or Woodend, I can't remember which golf club it was, but um, they had a massive storm go through and so we sent up five guys for the day in our truck and chainsaws and, you know, all those sorts of things where you just, you get in and help people and and I think too, you know, as the competitive nature of the sand belt in Melbourne, um, you know, I think that's a different level completely but, yeah, going back to, to Sean and my relationship, you know, like we can sit down and have a beer or coffee and just chat about what we've been doing at Sandy, what they've been doing there and, um, you know, like it's just – a lot of the time, the practices are the same. It's just here in Royal Melbourne, everything's on a glo- like a big scale. Yeah. It's just like you know on steroids. So, yeah, mm. are you a better golfer than Sean? Yes. Oh, hashtag awkward. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's he'll uh, definitely um, admit to that too. So. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. I, I will just say we had Richard on this podcast in the lead up to the Presidents Cup in twenty nineteen. It's still one of my favourite episodes. I urge anybody who's got any interest in golf to have a listen. He is genuinely well. He's quite a special sort of a bloke, isn't he? he I is. think. Australia's lucky to have him in a sense because, yeah, go and have a listen. I think you'll pick up on on what I'm talking about, a terrific bloke. Let's talk about Royal Melbourne. It's got a special place in world golf. It's certainly got a special place in Australian golf, consistently considered by those who know anything about this sort of stuff. Well, the composite course, undoubtedly the best course in Australia, and the two courses individually, both in the top five, the West probably the best. And yet, one goes to Royal Melbourne and never feels intimidated or it's a a place that could do that if it wanted to doesn't talk a little bit about the culture of royal moment even just to the point of getting involved here at sandy links i think it was about 12 years ago they took over the lease here yeah yeah mm. i think i mean you know like for me that was such a um, for the lack of a better word you know a genius stroke because you know if they're going to keep hosting tournaments, you know, like a lot of places in the world, you know, everything grows, but you've got the same piece of land yeah. and stuff like that. So Le- I th- Sorry, logistics of big tournaments at a place like a President's Cup. Ridiculous. You need at least two other golf courses just to handle the parking. Correct, correct. And I mean, you know, like it went hand in hand that, you know, they started to lease it was before, just before I think the 2011 President's Cup, which yeah. was, you know, obviously I came in February 2011 and, um, you know, I just thought, oh, what, what a, who, whoever thought of that was such a great idea because, you know, like it's, it's kind of a bit of a legacy too, I guess. And, and, you know, getting back to, um, Royal Melbourne, making you feel just like you're at home. They're very community minded. And, um, you know, for me coming to Royal Melbourne, um, I'd played there as a junior a couple of times and it's this, you know, I guess it's that rah moment, it's up on the hill and all that sort of thing. But, um, very much so, like the members are fantastic and, um, you know, like I, I, I guess because I'm a golfer and, and, you know, I'm a very engaging person, I, if people walk past and members walk past, oh, hi, how are you going? Oh, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? And that's all you need to say to them. But, um, you know, they're always very interested in what you're doing and, um, uh, I think they really get and understand all the hard work we put in to make it always be on top. And, you know, the staff are fantastic. And I think, you know, I, I say the word culture and professional in the same sentence a lot when I talk about Royal Melbourne because it is, it's very much a professional place, but the culture is great. You know, like 
we don't get to really, um, you know, socialize much with the clubhouse staff just because we're all so busy mm. and stuff. But, you know, like you go up there, even, you know, we go up there anytime and, you know, you're very welcomed. You walk in, the members will be like, Oh, hi, how are you going? And, that, and that's in the clubhouse, which, you know, you don't go in there very often, but, um, you certainly don't feel intimidated. It's not like oh, I can't go in there and, and, and that's not what thing. you expect, is it, Jerry? I think everybody goes, No, everything we have in life comes with some sort of preloaded. Expectation. And you expect the first time you go to Royal Melbourne that they'll have this superiority complex and that you'll feel intimidated and that you'll feel it. And you genuinely don't. That's not true of all high-end golf clubs. A lot of them you do feel out of place and you do feel intimidated. Yeah. But Royal Melbourne, which means it's not fake, doesn't it? Yeah, They're not it does. trying to pretend like that. that mm. it, they genuinely – there's something about confidence in it. Royal Melbourne has a confidence about its place in world golf where it has no need to try and tell you how good it is. That's it. That's it. And, and, you know, one of my favorite places on, on the complex is on the fifth West Tee, which is a famous par three. And, and my favorite hole is the sixth, which is the next hole. And, Mine too. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm always in awe when I get to go and play after work and stuff or, or all mem- members ask me to go and play. And, and I think the actual piece of land is exactly like that. It's very understated. And, you know, like it's just beautiful rolling hills and, you know, undulations and the greens are fantastic complex, but it's like, you know, it's it's not cocky. It like, has grandeur, doesn't it? It does. But it's genuine class. It is, it's yeah. It's not mutton dressed up as land. No, there's exactly. A, there's a magnificent sweeping grandeur And what you see is what you get. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree with you. And, and, you know, like you said before, um, you know, it just has that air of, yes, we're Royal Melbourne, but that, that's it. There's no, there's no other underlying, you know, yeah. um, confidence or anything like that about it. And, and for me, it holds a special place because, yeah, it's always been at the top of the golf. And then, you know, for me to come and work when I, when I first applied for the job at Sandringham and, um, a lot of people said, Oh, why are you going? It's a public course, Rara. I said, Well, Royal Melbourne's leasing it. I said, mm-hmm. Nothing bad can come of that. And, and who knows what the future will hold. And lo and behold, 10 years later, um, yeah, yeah here you things are. happen. Yeah, so. indeed. I've always thought of Royal Melbourne a little bit. For golfers, a little bit like Augusta National, all I think all Australian golfers feel a little bit of a sense of ownership of Royal Melbourne. It's Australia's golf course, yep. you know. It's the one we have to show to the rest of the world at the Presidents Cup and those sorts of things. That's it. And it stands up and holds its head up in any company. Um, yep. And I think we all have a pride about that, despite the fact that most of us will never be members and most of us will never really get to play it. That's it. And it, you don't need to play it though, do you? I, I find I can follow fifteen, mar- and I've done followed fifteen markers around Royal Melbourne and enjoyed watching <laughs> watching the golf. Absolutely, and and you know, like at the today, uh, they're hosting the Sandbelt Invitational there. Who did the pins, Jerry? I saw the pin on eighteen West. That was cruel. <laughs> that was the chief himself. So big um, man. But you know, like I, I've looked at that. That event, the four days, and it's four strategic, diff- completely different strategic golf courses. And you know, for me, I've always said Royal Melbourne holds its own. And the greens, you know, like it's not a long course. Again, mm-hmm. you know, we talk talking about Sandringham earlier, and um, you know, like a lot of those guys. Ten West is a great example. You know, not many people hit their driver off the tee, even in the Presidents Cup. No, they weren't even. Right? Dustin Johnson hit two iron through the back. If I'm exactly mistaken. one east, another great hole. You know, like so a great golf <laughs> hole that. Always gets overlooked. If you walk off with par off the first east, you're a happy man. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, for me, like, you know, you, you play somewhere like Royal Melbourne and it's, you've just got to have such a great imagination around the green. Mm-hmm. You go to a Kingston Heath, don't get me wrong, still the same imagination, but, you know, you can be a little more generous. and a different test, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. And Yarra Yarra will be different again tomorrow. It'll be probably quick and whereas ours are bouncy, you know. So, and, and then Peninsula Kingswood, what a great facility that is. So, um, you know, like when when you put it, in amongst like a four-day event like that, you just go, how good's that that yeah. 
you know, Royal Melbourne holds its own because it's not long. You know, you've got to be in the right. Oh. Sorry. That's okay. Just pour that on yourself. That's fine. Jerry's just spilled her water bottle, by the way, all over herself, and I'm not editing that out. So there you go. Oh, no, don't One do back that. Me. No, you can fly a plane. You play off <laughs> one, and you're the core superintendent. Every now and then, they've got to have a chink in the armour, and that's going to be it. I'm publicly exposing you. Fine. Now I've wet my pants. It's okay. Let's talk about the President's Cup. What an event. And it was, I think, the best event of 2019, and a lot of people think so too. And it was a magnificent – well, one, we got to see Tiger Woods at Royal Melbourne, and that's like the great violinist and the world's best violin coming together, I thought. Absolutely. There were 23 golfers in the field and there was Tiger. He was by far and away. It allowed him to show off his extraordinary skills, I thought, despite not being 7,500 yards or 8,000 yards, all that sort of stuff, which was amazing. But for – the course staff and for the course itself. Tell me about what it's like to be part of the President's Cup. When I spoke to Richard about it, that is some operation. Oh, it, it's amazing. <laughs> I think we had like 90 staff in the, in our smoko room, which, you know, normally has, holds 30. So that atmosphere in itself was electric. And from Every, all over the world, Jerry? All over the world. Yeah. We had supers from America. Uh, we had guys from New Zealand. We had everyone, I mean, people from all over Australia. So, and such a diverse range, um, you know, of experience and youth and just, you know, enthusiasm. And, um, I was very privileged to be in charge of the bunker crew. So every day I got, um, got my team together and, you know, gave them the rev up. And it was, I, I always, um, try and have a like a sporting analogy and it's like a footy team you know you get your team together and you pump them up and you know we get out there we have a good day and and um you know at the end of the day you sit down you go right that was a great day we could have done this better could have done that better and but um yeah it probably started two two and a half years before that mm. um for the preparation of you know the greens and and fairways and things like that and and like you said the composite course what a fantastic um you know venue it is and um and then you know like and then it starts with all the building of the the um marquees and all that sort of thing and so it's such a background um you know type of thing and front of mind for the whole superintendent greenkeeping team i imagine for that whole two and a half years absolutely everything is about that yeah so you, you sort of you know it's, i guess it's like a lot of things when you know you're planning for your holidays you work back from a certain date. well we you know you'd go right this is the date that we need to be on show the start of December, we've got to, you know, we've got to be ready then for the junior presence because we had the junior presence come too. So such a new um, dynamic because we don't, we'd held the Australian Masters, I think it was World Cup a few years earlier, 20, back to yeah. back. Yes. 2016, maybe? I think so. Anyway. Um, and then, yeah, so to hold a back to back, so to have your greens primed pretty much for 12 days was such a, you know, a, a huge that, thing. For that level of golf. Absolutely. I mean, normally four days is about all they can do, isn't it? That's really? it, yeah. And, and Craig Anthony was, um, you know, he was taking charge of the greens and just had them, like, spot on every single day. And um, so, yeah, so the two years before, obviously, you know, we didn't lift any greens. That's the the um, the way that we take away the thatch and that at Royal. So, you know, none of that, all that sort of, you know, sort of gets put on hold and everything then is, is, is in the lead up to the President's Cup. And um, for me, it was, yeah, such an honour to be leading a team and to – because everything's televised and everything's global, like you know, you, I can't remember what it was, how many billion people were going to be watching, and you know, it, it could have been the last time we saw Tiger and all this sort of thing. So Probably the crowd is. was electric, you know, and you know, every day it was just you could hear a roar, and and we would sit in the worksheds watching the TV and going, "That's just out there." Yeah. Um, and then you'd hear I the roar. Oh, that's my bunker. He just it. hit that in. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and then so I was privileged enough then also to the last day I was um we sent out someone boarding the bunkers with every group, and I had the Cameron Smith, Justin Thomas. Oh wow! I actually got to pick because I was the bunker um, queen. 
Um, good pick. Good match. Yeah. So I really wanted to watch Justin Thomas. And, and Ricky Fowler was my second choice, and he hadn't been playing that. I was like, I'll take Justin Thomas. And that was before I'd heard he was going to play Smith. So we're actually out on the Saturday afternoon um, late doing our bunker thing and we're standing there watching one of the scoreboards and they were doing the team pick, like the uh, match pitch for the next day and Justin Thomas and we're all standing there and Cameron Smith, I'm like, yeah. And like, Winner. You know, like I probably <laughs> roared as loud as I would if I saw Tiger chip in there on 7 West. So um, that was fantastic to be inside the ropes to watch all that and and that was the culmination obviously of the week. Um, but, yeah, leading up to it was just, you know, the month out, the two months out. It was it was very much a scheduled plan. Um, Accelerates though, doesn't it? It does. At two and a half years, you're doing bits and pieces. That's it. Three Three months to go, it starts to really ramp That's up, it. and with a week to go, and you know that that six months before, obviously Richard was, you know, people were contacting Richard, and and, and probably for the twelve months before, oh, is there any spots for this, you know? And so, and and again, you talk about the the golfing fraternity, you know, a lot of supers would, you know, contact Richard and say, oh, look. You know, Billy wants to come and work at the President's Cup. Have you got a spot? Yeah, sure. Send him over. And so we got such a great, um, you know, we had apprentices, as I said before, we had apprentices, supers and everything, and they just wanted to come and work for us. And, and so I, at one point I had, um, his name was Barry. He's from New Zealand and, you know, he'd been greenkeeping since day dot pretty much. And I was, bossing him around, like, you know, doing bunkers and showing him how to do bunkers. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, like. right about this. Exactly. I should be, like, bowing down to him. And, and you know, the guys from the States were hilarious. You know, they just came out. They'd never seen Cooch before and they'd never experienced, like, such hot weather. And um, to say that it was a, an amazing event, like, everything – Richard has this knack of, like you talk about the weather before, like it was mid-20s the whole time. We didn't have the, the previous President's Cup. 2011, I remember, we had a downpour on the Saturday and the car park here at Sandy turned into a mud pile and, you know, there were washouts in bunkers. So, you know, touch wood, this didn't happen that time. But um, it all went off flawlessly. Um, and I think one of the for, – for us as the management team, one of the lasting memories I had was – um, I went and, like, thanked all my bunker crew and made sure I thanked everybody on the Sunday night having beers and they all said – we can't believe how calm everybody was on the radio. Nothing ever phased you guys and everything was organised down to the T. And I think for us, you know, to walk away from that week and to have, you know, no one went to the wrong hole to start mowing, no one, you know, and all these things that can happen in the background and throw a spanner in the works. Imagine. Exactly. I mean, it would be almost unheard of. And the bigger the crew gets and the more people want to help, yeah. the more chance for those things Absolutely. to go Absolutely. And, you know, you, you, you go from, you know, every day – um, managing two or three people or four people to, I had like 15 to 20 on my bunker crew. Yeah. So, and I had to check every bunker and, and even down to the, you know, like we used to, um, where they were teeing off at three West, which was number one, like, you know, we had to do all that side of the course before they were even starting to practice because of noise. And so you have to think of logistically all these things that happen behind the scenes. And, um, it was a massive event, went off fantastically. And, you know, like I'd love to do another one. Uh, some other time, and we'll see what happens. You never know. Mm. Who knows? It may well come. Mm. We don't. We don't know. Uh, just speaking of the logistics, I remember talking to Richard just about he, he his head was full of uh, truck movements for yes. to to bring in the stuff to build the scaffolding for the grandstands and the yep. corporate. Yep. Well, you don't just drive trucks across Royal Melbourne. No. There's got to be a route planned out. There are members playing golf. There's all these things to think about that you yeah. would never think about yourself. None of which, of course, has anything to do with cutting grass, Jerry. And one of the things that happens when you become a superintendent is there's a whole bunch of paperwork. Yes. There's a much bigger desk to drive. <laughs> How do you feel about all that? In some ways, you become a victim of your own success, do you? You do this job because you love it and you love the course and you love to look after it and you love to present it. And as soon as you get really good at that, they stick you behind a desk where you don't get to do as much Ooh. of that anymore. How have you found that transition? Uh, so, yeah, you've, you've certainly got to uh, prioritise your time. I think time management is a huge thing and um, I'm – 
I guess, lucky enough or unlucky enough, I'm not sure yet. Um, I still do quite a bit of uh, hands-on stuff. So uh, eventually I'd say it'll, you know, peter off and I'll still I'll need to do more paperwork. But, um, yeah, I, I love to be an organised person and we've got um, Task Tracker, which is a great uh, tool um, for all our daily activities and things like that. And then it's great to look back on and say, oh, when did we do this? How long did that take and stuff like that? So, you know, for me it's learning about all those skills as well and, and bringing all that together, writing emails and, you know, um, liaising and especially here at Sandringham, you know, it's still being, you know, council-owned land because Royal Melbourne lease it. You know, you've got to talk to a lot of different people and, and also too now- Government people, Jerry. Government people. With forms that have got numbers like F247 and you didn't tick the right box. That's it. That's it. And, and of course, now um, the inhabitants, I guess you'd say, of, of our beautiful building here at Sandringham, you know, the PGA, Golf Australia and, um, you know- I guess I haven't just got the golf course to look after. I've got all the whole facility here, the driving range and everything. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that my skill set, uh, will certainly hold me in good stead and, and I'll, I'll learn more and, and, um, and certainly learn off the people that are, um, I'm liaising with and, and things like that. And, and hopefully, um, you know, we can all work together and, and, and get it done. So just like golf, people have been swinging golf clubs for hundreds of years. People have been cutting grass for golf courses for hundreds of years. What role is technology playing in all this? We know most of us as golfers what role technology has played in golf and the accelerating pace of that over the last 20 years or so. Mm. How's it? You mentioned task tracking. There. I immediately start to think how this thing, I'm holding up the phone, impacts every part of our lives. How's technology and the phone and some of those things changing the way we look after golf courses for the better and perhaps in some ways, this is true I think of the golf swing too, for the worse? Things that we used to do that we say, oh, that's old school thinking now that maybe we shouldn't be saying that's old school thinking. Talk a little bit about that. You say old school thinking, that's Richard in a nutshell. <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, no, I think uh, you talk about the phone. Even today, I was out in the field and uh, we used to have, we've got two way radios and you used to be able to put up the irrigation with a two way radio. Well, now there's an app on the phone, you know, and I can stand there and be standing next to a sprinkler, bang, push a button, off it goes. So, in a lot of ways, you're exactly right. It's made life so much easier. Uh, efficient in a lot of ways. I think efficient. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, and like every good computer, when it's working well, it's working it's, well. They're fantastic when they work. When they're not, you know, lightning strikes the satellite, off goes all your irrigation. Um, but I think it's come a long way. And ev- even today, you know, they're, they're trialling and they've built uh, GPS mm, uh, sprayers. Mowers. And in, mowers even. In, even mowers. And, um, you know, robots, that'll be the thing of the future. Uh, whether they'll be able to do the job just as good or not, I'm not sure. But uh, certainly even even just out in the driving range here, we touched base uh, earlier about the ta- uh, top tracer, um, you know, like how that works and, you know, there's not a goal, there's not a tracker in every single golf ball. So there's cameras, there's all these like things. magic, that, isn't it, Jerry? I'm not sure. There's black magic. I don't, I don't sure, understand so. it, yes. But, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's certainly, I think, in the greenkeeping sense, come a long way. Still got a long way to go and, you know, down to things like, <clears throat> excuse me, when we spray – you know, apply things to greens and stuff. We have a, a program called the Growing Degree Days and it all goes on temperature and days and how long between things. And so there's all that technology, um, which is fantastic. And I think, yeah, we'll see what comes out machinery-wise and stuff in the next few years yeah. and that's always a bit of a, um, you know, sometimes a no-brainer. You get that, but then other times it's like, yeah, it's not quite right for us. As a golfer, you'd be well aware of some of the pressures on golf, particularly in urban areas and public golf, and there's things that we talk about on this podcast a lot and other podcasts that I do, and there's important things about there. One of the things that's often raised by those who campaign for golf to be removed in place of something else is the environment. You're a golf course superintendent. You have responsibilities. What don't people understand about what golf courses do in terms of the environment? Are we environmental vandals as golf courses? 
are we improving in that space? And what role do those who maintain the golf courses have in that discussion and the ongoing future of golf within communities and societies? Look, in all honesty, Rod, I think it's a double-edged sword because um, obviously people would want every golf course to be totally organic, you know, no inputs of anything that's, you know, synthetic or or anything like that. And, um, you know, there's certain, especially at Royal Melbourne, but now at Sandringham, obviously now that I'm the super, Mm -hmm. there's certain expectations and, you know, diseases, for example, or fertilizer inputs. And you need all that to maintain grass. And and we touched on it earlier about it being very scientific now, and it's not just put some water on it and cut it. So, um, you know, a lot of the superintendents are very much, it's about our carbon footprint um, and, you know, thinking about the future. So I think it's changed a lot, um, again, you know, from the last sort of 30, 35 years because a lot of products back then even as, as early as that were all lead-based or, you know, mercury-based and things like that. So now I think um, certainly a lot of the, um, you know, chemistry of uh, certain applications and things like that are very much more environmentally friendly uh, and, and, you know, Everyone is trained. We have the system uh, EPAR, and so everyone, you know, is environmentally, I think, um, aware of everything that we do on the golf courses. But even the new people that come to work for us, um, and I think, which is the most important first step, isn't it? Awareness of those doing the work, that and and a genuine commitment, absolutely, to do your best, even though you might not always be able to do everything perfectly, but to be doing your best is yeah. the most important thing. Absolutely, and and I think if you've got all those um, programs and 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 applications in place, and something does go wrong, well then you're trained to sustain, like, you know, contain it or, you know, get rid of it as soon as you can, you know, so that it's not going to impact the environment. Um, but even just here at Sandringham, we have a small billabong down the back and, um, you know, there's some frogs in there that obviously, you know, you can't touch a certain canopy of the, the dam or the, the billabong because of, of the frogs. So, you know, there's always, we're always finding, you know, native grasses or, or heathland and things like that. So, and, and a lot of, I think parts of the golf course are very protected, um, and and they'll be maintained for future generations. But um, I, going back to your point, I think everybody wants to do their best, and and you know I think um, laboratories and all these people testing all the chem, chem, uh, chemicals and stuff these days. I think yeah they've certainly come along in leaps and bounds, and they're always bringing out new products. And um, but I think personally, I always think it's about the expectation of the consumer or the member. Um, you know, they want a certain level of a golf course and sometimes to maintain that, yeah, you do have to, um, I won't say do the wrong thing, but not do the best thing, I guess. Um, and going back to that, you know, yeah, it's all about those practices and the, and the training and, and, you know, um, you know, people knowing what they're doing and why they're doing it and, and how to control it. We're both golfers. I spoke to Richard about this as well. He used to work at Metro. Probably the absolute poster child for the perfect golf course, mm. which makes people want the perfect golf course, That's which it. introduces a bunch of the expectations that cause problems, uh, as you've just pointed out. How do we educate golfers? How do we educate golfers that condition is so overrated in the way people think about and put golf courses in a pecking order, isn't it? And I just wonder how... All of us who understand that, how, how do we go about educating golfers who maybe don't understand that? I think um, the introduction of social media obviously is a huge thing now. And, and I know Richard, um, just for example, recently uh, did a, a few sort of course care videos. And, and I think uh, it's that relationship that the course super has, whether it's with the members or the general manager, or but it's that line of communication. Um, you know, like you need to, you know, you know, you need to be transparent. You need to be, um, 
letting people know what you're doing and 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 how you're going about things and that. And then I think education is is the big thing. Um, you know, if 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 you make a short video, let let's say you know when we lift greens and things like that, you know, we always we archive things and and make you know videos and and so social media has been a great thing for that. But um, yeah, I think just members understanding you know the level that. I guess, you know, we as professionals, um, like to uphold, uh, and, and again, you know, it's whether it's Greens Committee, um, minutes or whether it's, you know, e-newsers, things like that. I think the only way to get it out there is to, you know, just communicate really well. Members can be a finicky boss, can't they? They can. <laughs> they, they They've got their best lawn in the street, so. <laughs> that, well, yes, and that, that is a real phenomenon, isn't it? It is. And we all as golfers have a responsibility not to do that, don't we? We do. Do we, do enough of us understand that yet? And again, how do we help those people to understand? I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard one because as a member myself, you know, like obviously I get to go and play a lot of nice courses and, and you wonder how they do things and this and that. And you go, I wonder why they're not doing that. And whether it's budget constraints or resources, whatever it is. And so I think a lot of the time, yeah, the member expectation is, uh, far too high. Um, Unreasonably high in many and, and of course, core supers, to their credit, have somehow managed to produce amazing playing services with with resources that weren't really up to the job for so long. Exactly. That the expectation is they'll just continue to And they'll do get better. That. And next right. year, and, and I mean, how can you improve sometimes? How can you improve on the best? Yeah. So um, it's always that juggling act of, uh, you know, yeah, trying to, I guess, produce a golf course that is very much member suited. I mean, it, Sandringham's a great uh, example because, you know, like I don't want people coming here and putting off the green because they're so hard and fast, like, you know, or they hit a good shot and it, you know, runs all the way through the back. This so, is a different product to Royal Melbourne, isn't it? Oh, it's correct. A, it's a different product in that marketplace. Correct, yeah. exactly. But, you know, wherever, whatever, you know, um, company you work for, I guess you've got to meet that member expectation. And, you know, again, I, I always think they're unrealistic because, you know, A, it's probably a perfectly fantastically good golf course yet you think as a member oh it can be better you need to rake the bunkers better or, or anything like that so i think you know going back to now my role as a superintendent you have to be i guess a bit more level-headed and a bit more um you know just go get lessons don't say that to them <laughs> and, oh, i'll job to show you how to play the that's shot that's right. probably the other you one. improve your golf don't ask me to improve yeah. the golf course and it's, yeah. it's funny um i won't say whether it's at royal or sandy but uh you see quite a few regulars that never get much better so it's kind of like hmm yeah, I don't know why you can uh, comment on how I run my golf course and you do that. But, um, yeah, I think, I think, um, yeah, member expectations always way too high. There is no membership here at Sandy. It's a public golf course. That's right. So how does that change your role? Richard over at Royal Melbourne has a very defined membership to answer to via committees and boards and all those sorts of things. Yours is a much more fluid customer, isn't it? It is. Some people who play here every week, I imagine, religiously like a member, and others who only ever come here once. How does that change your role and how you look after the golf course and present the golf course, if at all? Um, probably doesn't change too much. I think for me, um, you know, I say a lot because I'm a player as well, but I, I think about, you know, the average 20 golfer that's come for their Christmas party this, these, these couple of weeks, right? And, you know, he doesn't want to be looking for his ball every bloody hole or he doesn't want to be, you know, searching the rough of the ball. So um, it's about playability here and, and obviously, you know, um, numbers is money here. So, you know, you don't want them to be also out there for six hours. So um, for me, I think it hit home a little bit um, when we first came out of the COVID lockdowns and we couldn't go any more than like, five or 10 Ks. And so a lot of people that live 
quite close to here, couldn't get to their own golf courses, and some of them were very nice golf courses, and they came to play at Sandringham, and they couldn't believe how good the facility was, the greens, and and. And you know, just the general vibe, I guess, you of the should place. Be puffing up right now—that's an enormous compliment. It's a huge compliment, and um, their expectation was down here, absolutely. And the reality was up here, absolutely. And and yeah, I took a lot away from that. And and then any time anyone uh, has a great compliment, I take it straight back. And the next morning, meal, oh, I was talking to so and so yesterday who plays at this golf course, and they were raving about the place. And um, so you know, like it's it's all about, I think, for me. You, you put, you hit the nail on the head. It's a member, it's, um, you know, customer experience. And, and for me, I always say the most important part of the golf course is your first and 10th tee and your 18th and 9th green because it's your first and lasting impressions. And so if you walk onto the first 10, you go, Oh, I'm really excited to play this golf course or the 10th tee. I, I think you're winning straight away. So, um, you know, I'm hoping that I can impart a bit of, um, my golfing knowledge, I guess, and golfing strategy. So, you know, like today I was just out mowing a bit of rough. And so, you know, you leave a little bit of the wispy stuff. So it looks like a, a sand belt course and you want them to experience that. But then, you know, they can still hit out of it and they can still see their golf ball. So, you know, a, a lot of it, I guess, is also to, um, if they come here for the first time. And I'm, I very much believe in this. If I, let's say I come here for the first time and I have three friends come, they're going to then invite three friends because it's such a bloody good place. So, you know, it's that snowball effect of, um, you know, you want people to come and want to come back. Greenkeeping, looking after golf course is a passion for you. It is. You just made it very clear. It's also a business. And that's that changes things, doesn't it? You can do art as a passion and paint whatever you like. Mm. If you want to sell it, you got to paint art. You got to paint art that people want to buy. That's it. And and I think enthusiasm is a big thing for me. I I want my staff. And so at the moment we run <clears throat> three full time staff here, and then we have a rotating two week stint from some of the Royal Melbourne staff. And um, I want to lead from the pack, and I want them to come over here with the enthusiasm that they're presenting a golf course. Yes, it's a public course, but it's a direct descendant of Royal Melbourne. You know, like it, we're a mini them. That's mm. what I want it to be, because you know you come here, you pay your money. You go, you play, you come, you have a beer afterwards, you want to come back. It's not like you're tied to it, you've paid this much money because, and you have to play here every week. You come because you want to. You will come in because you want to and you might only come and play once a month. But every time you come back, you're like, oh, I remember last time, I remember last time. Mm. So, And you touch on it like, you know, growing up as a kid, you went out to the golf, the local golf club and it was just the members and that's it, you know. Nowadays, they're function centres, they're seminar centres. You know, it is golf clubs have become a business and there's a few that don't have to do that. Fantastic. But like where I am a member at Southern, um, you know, we rely on a lot of outside revenue. It's not just memberships. Uh, so corporate days, all these sorts of things. And so here at Sandringham, it's that repeat business that, you know, you, you need and you want. And, you know, there's a few social clubs that are affiliated here and, and they obviously love it because they keep coming back. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. It's a, it's a very different sort of customer base, isn't it? Uh, in some ways, it's, a, it's, it'll keep you on your toes. It's much more capitalist. If you've paid your membership at Royal Melbourne, well, you've paid it. Mm. And you can't not pay it again until next year. It's done. If you come here and don't like it and don't come back, the course is paying a price for it. A lot of the things you talked about particularly early on struck me as leadership, which is a very big and sort of esoteric topic. You have all sorts of thoughts about it. But it keeps me in mind, Jerry, of I wanted to ask you this question. There's no polite way to ask it. Are you ambitious? I'd like to say that I am ambitious. Yeah. I, I love to lead from the front. Um not meaning that means I'm first here and last to leave. It, uh, I'm hoping that I'll learn to be a very good delegator and a leader in the sense that I entrust and empower people. Um, I will teach people everything that I know because what happens if I'm not here for the day? That's my philosophy. Um, but leadership, it does, I think it's a big balloon. 
as you just said then. For me also too, being now there's another girl, on the a lady on the ground staff at Royal Melbourne, but um, being the only girl too, I always thought I was, shouldn't say the mother figure, but the big sister, I guess, figure. Mm. And leadership for me is not only on the golf course. It's about, you know, when we're sitting down having a barbie or having a beer on a Friday and talking about life in general um, and, and the lads and leading them hopefully in a good direction as well. So um, I think leadership it encompasses a lot. Uh, and as a woman, I hope I do a really good job and also to uh, empower my staff. You'll probably see where I'm going with this, but is there a day in the in the future where the Royal Melbourne Director of Golf Courses, which at the moment is Richard, might be Jerry O'Callaghan, or if not Jerry O'Callaghan, another woman? I sincerely hope so. And what would that mean for golf? Why would that be a good thing? For me, when I first uh, was offered the role of the foreman at Royal Melbourne, I was so chuffed because traditionally it's a male-dominated industry, tick, traditional, very historic course. Mm. Um, everything. I mean, you know, nowadays everything's equal opportunity, so that's fantastic. But There's to, a lot of equal opportunity boxes that get ticked, though, aren't there? there are. And there's not a lot of legitimate commitment to equal opportunity amongst some of that. Correct. In fact, there's a lot of effort made to tick equal opportunity boxes some without actually providing equal opportunity. Yeah. And, and, yeah, I guess for me to get the nod – Back then, um, yeah, they'd probably never had, uh, I guess, a, a superior or a senior woman uh, over there. So, yeah, that was amazing for starters. And now, um, you know, I've, I think, encouraged quite a few women that I know, um, one being Kim Kennedy at uh, Kingston Heath. She came to the President's Cup and, um, you know, I, I sort of got her into greenkeeping, which was fantastic. And you, you touched on it earlier again about being a trailblazer and, you know, I've, I just think that, you know, if any given an opportunity, anyone can excel and, you know, it's that support base and it's also that mentor like Craig Anthony, who's now the superintendent at Spring Valley. He's moved on from Royal Melbourne. He was fantastic, um, you know, just a great leader, absolutely, you know, fantastic guy and, um, you know, you need to have those sort of support and role models as well. But I think, um, yeah, for me, I don't – I don't want to stand out. I don't want to take all the accolades because of what I do and where I've got to. But um, sometimes you sort of just got to, you know, take that on the chin and just just do it. But, um, yeah, for me, I think the future's good for women because there's so many different roles, you know, whether it's a superintendent, whether it's a foreman, whether it's an assistant superintendent. Um, you know, the, the leadership roles, I think, and management roles are, are very um, – you know, they're within reach for women now more than ever. And I say that not meaning that they never were, like you said earlier, but um, I think now, you know, we we can do everything equally as good and, you know, we can operate everything. We can go and learn everything um, just as much as men. So I was going to ask you, is there a legitimate sensible reason why greenkeeping should be a male-dominated industry? Is there something about men that makes them naturally better at greenkeeping than women? Not Not in any sense at no. all. I think um, probably the stigma was, you know, the sons would mow the lawn at home, so they're probably better at it than women. But um, the, the mechanic that used to work at Sandhurst, he used to say he loved the women greenkeepers because let's say you're driving a fairway mower and you hear a noise that doesn't sound right, we'll take it straight back and say, oh, we've heard this noise, what do you think it is? Whereas a guy will probably go, oh, we'll get these fairways finished. And, you know, so I think – because we think probably a little bit differently to men and, um, yeah, I'd say we're sometimes a bit more tentative, but then other times, 
You know, there's not nothing out in the field that, other than like lifting heavy things and things like that, but there's nothing in the field that I can't do that a man can't do or a, another woman couldn't do. So I think in that sense, it's come a long way. Um, but also saying that too, yeah, that being a, a manager, I guess not only in greenkeeping, but you know, you, you've got to have um, authority, you've got to have empathy, you've got to, there's so many different skills that you need to have, and women have just as many as men. So I, I can't see. I can't see why not in the future that a woman could be a superintendent at any Sandbelt course or any, you know, Sydney course or Augusta National. Correct. The old course. Yeah. Pine Valley, Cypress Point. Who knows? Yeah. You know, the old course. But um I think, yeah, very much so nowadays, anything's within reach. Is there do you see a generational shift? Because of course le- one of the things about leadership is you have to have respect, and respect generally has to be earned. Is it how can I put this? Are younger men different in attitude in that way to older men like me who grew up in a different world? Yeah. So, some of them are. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's like anything in life. And, um, you know, I've always said a diverse team is a great team because you can't have 10 of the same person. They might be the best worker and this and that, but, you know, they're not a great team worker or there's all these different um, people is what you're trying to say there, Jen. Exactly. They're all different and difficult exactly. in their own way. That's exactly right. They've all got everyone's got strengths and weaknesses, me included. I'm not perfect. But um I think No, you spilt your water. I know, all over <laughs> myself. But um I think that's the great team uh, that's the great thing about being in a bigger team because everyone brings something different to the plate. And as a leader, you need to know how to, you know, be in touch with every single person on your team and you need to manage people managing is so hard because you need to manage people a lot differently and so I think that's a strength of mine that you know like I can connect with people and build a relationship and understand you know that person's a verbal person that person's a practical person so you know there's all these different facets that I think you know as leaders you need to have and yeah hopefully I can build on that and and yeah maybe be a trailblazer so I suspect you are. A couple to finish up. Where have you picked up those skills from? Every leader has had a mentor along the way or a bunch of mentors along the way. Where have you picked up these tidbits that you've been dropping here about what it actually means to be a leader? A lot of people think of leadership as just strength and then they think of strength. All they think of is, you know, the the leader of a country who threatens to use the military. That sort of powerful idea. That's not really leadership, is it? That's No. it's a different thing. To yeah. Where have you picked up your thoughts about what being a leader means, and particularly given that it's because you're different in the workplace, what that means for you, and it's a different set of tests, I guess. Yeah. I think, I mean, you know, current day, Richard has been fantastic. I've mentioned Craig Anthony, Paul Thomas, who's the um, superintendent of the West Course, and, of course, Nick Staff, who was the uh, construction manager here and then went on to be the superintendent here. Uh, you know, in, in work life, I think those, uh, four guys have been very instrumental. Plus, um, you know, my early bosses from Sandring, uh, Sandhurst. But, uh, I think just in life in general, my brother, he's my rock. And, um, yeah, he's just one of those people that y- I always find I'm being inspired by him. Sorry, I get a bit emotional. Um, and you know, people like the lady captains at Southern and, and you know, people in my pennant team. They, and it can be people from everyday life and it does, they don't have to hold, a super in- job. Exactly. Or a doctor or a lawyer. Exactly. And, and, and for me, um, you know, I touched on it earlier, you know, I would play golf with anyone and I would hope that people would want to come and play with me because I'm Jerry. But, you know, in saying that, you can play golf with people and, you know, people come to mind like, 
you know, Heather Brody, who's been a, a long-time member, Sue Ellery, they're both long-time members of Royal Melbourne and now they're good friends of mine. And, you know, even just playing around a golf with people and, 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 you know, it's just inspiring, I think, and empowering. And, um, you know, when, I think when you play sport at a high level or you get to a, a high level in, in your career, um, it's, it is, it is a community effort. And, you know, I've, I've had people, um, I did a podcast with, uh, Karen Harding and. T for two, but a fabulous podcast, by the way. The first one she did an absolute Thank you. Yeah. I was the guinea pig. So, yeah. um, but you know, I've had people from my hometown in Kahuna who, no idea about technology and they've all listened to it. And I've had so many text messages and so many great, um, messages from people. And, and I think to myself, wow, um, you know, they've all had a part. My, you know, and, and you say it all the time, you know, you talk about school teachers and things like that, but you know, like I, I think anybody that's ever come into my life has come in for a reason. And, you know, whether it's been for a short period or so, I've picked up or I've, and, and in life too, sometimes you do learn what not to do. So, um, you know, there's, there's that fine balance of, taking you know hopefully you'll be a lifelong friend now rod and um you know like you take things from friends and you know whether it's experiences or whether it's just um you know being in their company you're always learning so i, th- I think that's a huge thing for me and yeah i mean i could talk about so many people um just having a, a impact on my life last two things and i always go i keep going back to guests on this podcast we had meg mclaren on this podcast wow she's fantastic meg and as you would know mm-hmm. i'll send you the link so you can have a listen one of the things that I talked about with her was she didn't mean to, but she has become, whether she likes it or not, the poster child for gender equity in golf. Yep. She sent out a tweet, and that's been the result. And so she's embraced that in many ways, even though it causes her all sorts of issues and distracts her from her real-life mission to be the best golfer she can be in a lot of ways. Do you feel any sense of that as well, that it's kind of been – what do they say? You know, some people achieve greatness, some have it thrust upon them, that kind of idea. Whether you want it or not, you're kind of a trailblazer, aren't you? I am. And, and, uh, yeah, I, I hide away from it a fair bit because, you know, I don't do, I never do things for, you know, to, to get the higher reward and stuff like that. So I'd like, I always like to think I'm a bit of a quiet achiever and this just comes with it. And, um, yeah. I've, now this is my second podcast, so I'm a, an old hand at it now. And um, there'll be uh, an article come out uh, soon in the Turfgrass magazine, and I don't know whether you saw in the Golf Australia magazine my beautiful golden retriever. So I did. Um, yeah, there, there's been a few things happened this year, and it kind of happened. Uh, 2016 was a breakout year for me in my golf, and it all happened within about a four month period. And same sort of thing has happened now. Um, you know, like I've progressed from. Sandringham, overall Melbourne, progressed through the, the ranks there and now to become here. And, it, you know, like I said, it's been about 10 years um, since I've been under the rural Melbourne umbrella, but it's been the last probably eight months that have really, um, I guess, shocked. Accelerated. Exactly. And, and yeah, I, I, I like it. Um, you know, like I really love the fact that, um, you know, well, I, I shouldn't say I'm getting the message out there, but um, if I Why am. Why not? Why shouldn't you be saying that? Why if, shouldn't if, you say Oh, it's, it's, it's a very, um, I guess it's a very humbling experience and, and the people want to know my story and, and they love the story and the fact that, yeah, I love, I like to think that I'm changing people's lives that if they choose this career because of me, that's pretty cool. Mm, indeed. This is all part of that leadership too, thing too, isn't it? This is a whole new set of skills. Gosh, yeah. For you. <laughs> who knows who might invite you somewhere to talk about leadership at a conference or an event or something like that. That'd be very cool. La- memo to anybody listening who runs conferences or events. Last one from me, Jerry. I've said it already a couple of times. We're a long way from Kahuna. 
We're a long way from 19-year-old Jerry. It's an impossible question to answer, but I think you'll get the gist of it. Looking back, if 19-year-old Jerry looked forward at an incredibly difficult time, could she ever have seen where Jerry is now? And what would she say? I, I really think that if I was looking back, it would be go and experience everything, go try things. If you think that's out of the ordinary, who cares? Just just go and have a go at it. If you don't like it, you learn from it and you try again. It's like that fork in the road I was speaking about earlier. You know, doesn't matter if you don't hit, you know, the sky's the limit, that's fine. If you only get to the clouds, that's okay. So I think looking back now, all the experiences I've had, and, and I don't like the word regret. So everything that's happened in my life has happened for a reason. And, you know, I don't regret those six years that I just went off soul searching and, you know, certainly don't regret the decision to, to do greenkeeping, obviously. But, um, you know, obviously wasn't meant to go off flying around the world, obviously meant to stay home. Well, a little bit. You're going to fly to King Island, aren't you? Well, that's exactly right. <laughs> and Far enough for most of us, trust Yeah, me. well, it's over water, so that could be, you know, hopefully it's a daylight today and no, no wind at all. But, um, you know, like I – I like to look back and think um, all the achievements that I've done, I'm pretty proud of, and I think, yeah, that, that little girl up in Kahuna would be, yeah, pretty chuffed. One of my favourite sayings is never regret the things you do, only the things you don't. And I think that's exactly what you've said. And that's a great fan- motto. Fantastic to hear your story today, Jerry, and I too hope we'll be lifelong friends. So thank you for taking some time today. It's been really enjoyable. I've, I've very much enjoyed it, and thank you very much for the, uh, for the experience. And you know I'll never get in a plane with you. <laughs> but you're going to have a hit of golf with me. Not because of you, <laughs> but because of the plane. Thanks very much, Jerry. Really appreciate it. That's it for episode 58 of the pod. I hope you enjoyed it and that meeting Jerry and finding out a bit about her journey has given you as much pause for thought as it has me. Do yourself a favour next time you're in Melbourne and check out Sandringham Links. Not only is it brilliantly maintained and a fabulous redesign, it's an excellent example of a lot of things that public golf could and should be. Now, I hope you've made the effort to follow us on your favourite podcast app, because up next, my colleague John Huggan has a very special guest. You know, I love the individual part of it. I love the fact that when I hit a bad shot, it was my fault, because back then I didn't have a coach or a caddy or anyone else that I could blame. Mm-hmm. I should do as you get older. So it was my fault. That's 1999 Open champion Paul Laurie, next time on The Thing About Golf. Golf.